think you guys know that we occasionally do mini-series of sermons, but for the most part, our habit is this stuff right here. We go through books of the Bible verse by verse. And one of the perks of doing that is that it forces us to hit stuff, to cover stuff that I would never preach on otherwise. Even some kind of awkward things to preach on like today. Today's passage is something I would never choose to preach on, and yet here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So basically a verse about esteeming me. So I put it in bold for you so you could use it for meditation and memorization. Okay, there it is. I think it'll be like somebody will say, hey, what's your favorite verse? And you'll use this one. That'd be great. Anyway, he goes on. He says, be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Then in verse 25, he says, brothers, pray for us. So this should be fun. Uh, this is uh, somewhat awkward for me to preach, but at the same time, what I get to do this morning, because we're just going through verse by verse, I get to cover a passage that I think a lot of pastors would love to preach on, but they just don't get the opportunity. And so I do this morning, and, and after all, what's the worst that could happen? People leave? It's 2020, like what are we risking, right? Like, <laughs> uh, I mean, my goodness, from uh, racial stuff to pandemic and all that, like, yeah, we're not risking much. This is a great year to cover this passage. Let's do it. So uh, at view in this passage is spiritual authority that it's a very real thing. Not just the authority of God, of course he has authority, but that he has delegated that authority to his regents in the church, and those are pastors and elders. We don't usually recognize spiritual authority anymore. Uh, The idea that to be in a church means that you are also submitted to the authority of the pastors and elders. We say, what? No way. I I just go there because I like it. They they don't have any authority over me. Well, question, does God have authority over you? Does the Bible have authority over you? And and if so, this is what it says. It, It is talking there about those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. This is clearly church leadership. And what it says is that they are over you. That is a a term of authority. Now, if you think about the context, back in Thessalonica in the day, there would have been one church in the town. And so when the pastors or elders would admonish you, is the term used there, that means to challenge you or to confront you. When they would admonish you, if you didn't like it, what could you do? (laughs) Like, you couldn't shift to another church. You would be a Christian without a church, which is something the scriptures don't imagine at all, okay? But now we are in a context that's a little bit different today. How many churches in Stowe? Let alone the surrounding communities in Northeast Ohio, right? So we're in a setting when a pastor says something you don't like, you bounce. And you shift to a different church. Part of the problem is that we're viewing pastors as CEOs of churches. And the idea of a CEO is it's the CEO's job to keep me as a consumer happy. So you think about the CEO of Target, right? Uh, Our our thought is he doesn't have any authority over us. 
I think some women might disagree. Like, I think he has authority in your life. I, I'm, that's a different issue. Hey, but, uh, but, but literally, like, he has no authority over you. The CEO of Target, it's a dude, his job is to keep you happy. And if you're not happy, you just go across the street to Myers, right? And unfortunately, we're approaching church like that. So I need to be very clear this morning. My job is not to keep you happy. It never has been. My job is to keep God happy. That's it. That's it. And I, I will stand before the Lord my God someday. You won't pass judgment on me. He will. And I desperately, in that moment, I want to hear from him. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the driving passion of my life for that moment. That's what I'm living for. It's not to keep you happy. It's to keep God happy. Now, to be fair, there, there is a perk to our modern setup where you can shift to a different church. And that is that you don't get stuck in a church that is a bad church or has bad leadership. Uh, you don't get stuck there. That's a, a, a kind of a good thing. And so I want to give you some idea of when it is okay to bounce to a different church. Uh, and here's a short list. Well, the first thing that came to mind for me is heresy. So when there is bad teaching, bad doctrine, I'm not talking like debatable, smaller issue, big ticket things. Like when the teaching goes sour, leave. Okay? But sometimes the doctrine is good, but the integrity isn't. So the second thing is when there's a lack of integrity or character, maybe their doctrinal statement is tight, and yet uh, they handle the money poorly, or they treat people poorly, or, or maybe uh, there's immorality and it's not being addressed lack of integrity. The third thing I came up with is visionless religion. This is when there's really no spirit, no passion, no mission, no gospel. We're not taking ground. Like it's visionless. And you get kind of numb to that religious setting and you go at, uh, like year after year and then you maybe you get go to visit a family member. You visit their church and you're like, it can be like this? No way. And you realize you're stuck in visionless religion. I think that's an okay time to bounce. And then the last thing I thought of is when you have done all you can, but you're still not growing. Notice the caveat. People, a lot of times, I wasn't growing there, so I switched churches. <laughs> did you get involved? Did you have relationships? Did you serve there? Did you get in a community group? No, no, no. That's why you didn't grow. It's not the church's fault, right? And so when you've done all you can and still you're not growing, okay, I, I understand that. I understand that. But let's contrast that list against when not to bounce from a church. And the first thing I thought of is they challenged my politics. <laughs> oh, God bless. So uh, our role is to teach the Bible. We don't teach politics. We teach the Bible. When we teach the Bible, there will be times when it will affirm your politics. And in that moment, it's ironic. What people do is go, amen, preach it, pastor. This is awesome. Then we will keep on teaching the Bible, and eventually it will challenge your politics. And in that moment, you'll go, when did we get all political? I am out of here. This is horrible, right? It's, it's kind of funny. I, I, uh, depending on the week, I'm conservative or liberal, according to people. Like, he's conservative, and then uh, he's liberal. Like, it depends, like, uh, and I'm really neither. I, what I, I try to be biblical, and so we teach the Bible, but know this, as we teach the Bible, it will eventually challenge your politics. It will. Because God addresses us all. He dresses us all down. And, and so, uh, yeah, be careful of bouncing, because they challenge my politics. 
A second reason not to bounce is that uh, when the Bible and culture disagreed, they sided with God. Gasp, no, no. Listen, the Bible is countercultural. It it corrects all cultures, and we have things in our culture that are wrong, and the Bible will address it, and we will side with God every time unapologetically. And so that's not the time to bounce. It's time to be challenged and to learn and to grow. Thirdly, they made a decision I didn't like. (laughs) Uh, Like how to handle a pandemic. (laughs) Listen, you understand there's no seminary class on that one, right? We're totally off book on this. And and we're we're doing the best we can as pastors and elders to make it up as we go. But uh, when you look on social media and you see people arguing from two sides of this being gross, and then it spills over into the church, and that is sad. It is not Holy Spirit inspired and, and it's, it's hurtful. When you say they made a decision I didn't like, what you are saying is the leadership at the church did not submit to me. Isn't that supposed to be the other way around? Right? Like, but that's what's being said in the moment. By the way, you guys are as quiet as first service was. It's kind of funny. Okay, we're going to just keep moving, all right? So here's, uh, here's the last fourth thing that I thought of uh, when not to bounce from a church. Uh, they admonished me or someone else. And I didn't like it. People, we didn't like it. It's our job. But we didn't like it. It's not fun. We don't enjoy doing that. So, for example, somebody's headed towards an unbiblical divorce. It is our role to speak into that and to admonish them. Okay, in that moment, I'm sad for them because either you're wrong or God is. And I know who gets my vote. And we want to speak into that because it comes from a shepherd's heart. Not to be a big deal, not to lord it over them. But I want the best for them because I really believe what Jesus said. It's not the time to bounce because they admonished me or somebody else. Though, despite those things, uh, it is shocking to me how often and how easily people bounce to a different church. Pastoring is a labor of love. And we pour into people in hard times. We walk alongside them through very big health challenges or maybe when they're coming up on death and seeing them through the end of that. We've walked alongside people through infertility And we counsel them because marriage is hard. We've counseled couples through infidelity and they've come back and continued together. We know their kids. We love their kids. We invest in their kids. We talk to them about how to parent their kids because their their, their kids are difficult. (laughs) Uh, We've walked with them through that. We've done family weddings. We've done family funerals. Now, when you think about that whole mountain, I've got families in mind where I've done nine out of 10. Like, like, uh, Like some families are like all that. All of that. And I might have ministered to them for 10 years. 10 years of investing pastoral ministry and they're gone. Don't like our response to COVID. Gone. Don't like that we speak against racial oppression. Gone. Don't like that we challenge their politics. Gone. Don't like that we carried out biblical church discipline. Gone. They hear a rumor or gossip or dissension, and instead of talking, gone. I've got one guy who was a part of our launch team that left here because I didn't speak to him enough in the atrium. We've got 1,500 people. Well, we used to. Thank you, 2020. But 1,500 people, like, yeah, 
and, and poof, gone. Despite 10 years of investment, sometimes uh, folks will leave with zero communication. Like, and, and sometimes what they do is they'll give a lame justification if they say anything. And here's why. Because listen, here's what people don't say. They don't say, actually, I'm a closet racist. And Redemption Chapel keeps doing that racial reconciliation stuff, and it makes me nervous, so I'm going to go to a different church. That doesn't roll off the tongue, right? And so they say something else. But they keep on talking to other people, and eventually the, the story often gets back to us. What was the real issue? Uh, it gets back to us. Now, in the big picture, uh, I end up being pretty okay with this stuff, and let me tell you why. Two reasons. Number one, because I don't believe in people. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And so when people like me are horrible and immature, uh, I've got a context for that. It's called the gospel. And Jesus looks really good. This is why we need the gospel. God's glorious people aren't. I'm good with that. And then the second reason is that the kingdom is huge, much bigger than Redemption Chapel. I'll let you in on a secret. If they leave here, they might go to a better church. <laughs> like Jesus' church is really big and beautiful and broad. And so if they go to a different church, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. There's some great churches out there. Nonetheless, there are problems with bouncing for the wrong reasons. And this concerns me. Let me name a few of them for you. Number one, you could become a serial bouncer. I made that term up. I like it. But you could become a serial bouncer. Uh, understand this. You are not following a leader until he or she does something you don't like and you still continue to follow. Up until that moment, you're just going for a walk. You just coincidentally happen to be walking in the same direction as that leader. Now, that leader says right, and you want to go left. In that moment, when you go, bye-bye, and you go left, you did not decide to not follow the leader. You revealed you were never following from the beginning. You were just out for a walk. All right? And, and, and I need you to know this. I am not a perfect pastor. We are blessed here with three pastors. None of us are perfect pastors. This is not a perfect church. And if you are of the disposition that you will leave when you find something you don't like or something you don't agree with, the clock is ticking. You'll get there, okay? You'll get there eventually. And then you'll shift to another church and you didn't get rid of the clock, you just reset it. Because you understand you didn't shift from an imperfect church to a perfect church, you shifted to another imperfect church. And you just reset the clock and it's ticking. You'll become a serial bouncer. So don't bounce just because you disagree with something. In that case, you want to communicate. You want to be humble and teachable and listen and learn. But here's the thing. If you bounce to another church, I want to ask you to do something. Whether you are leaving here, going there, or leaving somewhere else, coming here. Either way, I want you to enter into a covenant. And I want you to commit that you're going to stick. You're going to stay. You're going to submit and you're going to serve. If you bounce, make that commitment at your new church, right? So you could become a serial bouncer. A second problem that I see with this is that the whole church ends up weakened. Notice church is, uh, well, it, it's all lowercase, isn't it? But I mean the capital C church in that case. The whole church is weakened. So one of the effects of 2020 is that it is going to shave off a lot of Christians that were cultural Christians, consumer Christians, comfortable Christians, and coming out of this thing eventually, like they just, they won't come back to church. Okay, we'll just lose them. But another effect of 2020 is a large reshuffling of the kingdom of God. We're seeing that already. 
I was on the phone earlier this week with a, another local pastor. Uh, called him up just to say, hey, how you doing, brother? How's your congregation going? How you weathering this thing? And, and we did. We commiserated on how the reshuffling's happening. And I, I, we admitted to each I know I've got a lot of people that will leave my church and go to yours. I know you've got a lot of people that will leave your church and come to mine. Now, I think Redemption Chapel in the end will end up pretty even from that. So when we count noses at the end of this, it's the same amount of noses. But here's the problem. What happens is a lot of people leave behind your network of relationships uh, that, that you were known and trusted in the roles you were serving in. Like, and you, re, you reset the board on all that. And so what happens then in, in the church in America is while we reshuffle it all, we all end up weaker. You see that? We all end up weaker. And then the third problem that I saw is it's just not good for you. Um, we need uh, church leaders to challenge us. The reality is we often go to church not to get our opinions challenged, but to get our previously held opinions confirmed. And, and then when the pastors challenge us, instead of growing, we get going, we leave. And uh, what we do is we blame the leadership as we leave. Uh, but you need to grow. We need to grow. So that's a problem. That's a problem. All right, well, this has been really cathartic for me. <laughs> it's been really healing. Uh, what I want to do next is I want to uh, renegotiate my contract. I don't mean uh, dollars. I, I mean, when, in this passage, what Paul, I think, is doing is he's talking about the church leader's responsibility and the congregation's responsibility. And I want to look at those two things. We'll start out talking about our responsibility as pastors. And again, our, plural, because again, we have three. Pastor Austin, Pastor Jared, great guys, great pastors. Our responsibility. Now, Paul is talking to the congregation and saying, you need to respect your pastors. Okay, but there's something implicit in there, and that is that your pastors need to be respectable, right? F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on this passage, look what he said. He said, it will make for the effective life and witness of the church and for peaceful relations among its members if the leaders are recognized and honored and their decisions followed. Okay, but... Good, but listen to this next part. Watch this. The corollary of this is that the leaders should be the kind of people who deserve to be recognized and honored by their fellow Christians. Paul's commands are not a blank check for pastors to be jerks. Oh, you still got to esteem me. No. Okay. It's not a blank check for pastors to be lazy and just work on Sundays. No. It's not a blank check for pastors to be greedy or, or for pastors to love the limelight and the attention and the title and the authority. No, no, no. Admittedly, there are pastors that do all of that, and it makes me really sad. But uh, while this passage, Paul addresses the congregation a little bit more, Nonetheless, when you look at the full counsel of the Word of God, there is far more text where, where the Bible puts the thumb screws to church leadership and says there is a really, really high standard on church leaders. We need pastors who we can, it says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Because of their work. The implication is that they work hard. In verse 12, it uses the word labor. The word there is to strive, to struggle, to grow weary with the effort. And I'll be honest with you. 
In my experience of pastoral ministry, that's a great description. Uh, I, I, I work fairly hard, and if you don't believe me, just go ask my family. They know. Um, it's hard work, and we need pastors that do that. We need pastors who are not drawn to the stage and the title and the lights and the authority. We need pastors who are in love with Jesus, in love with his gospel, in love with his kingdom, in love with the mission. And they just are passionate. Like we love Christ's art of redemption. I can't get enough. We need more men like that. And we need pastors who have tender shepherds' hearts. They just love the people. Too often... Churches esteem leaders for the wrong reasons. Dynamic personalities, wild giftings, tall, dark, and handsome, other churches. <laughs> uh, but, but I'll tell you what, listen, at Redemption Chapel, know this, my name will never be on a sign by the road. Redemption Chapel, Pastor Rick McKee, no, not going to happen. We don't have any pa- private bathrooms. There are no green rooms. Uh, that's not the way we roll. And when I hear of pastors who have private jets and mansions and $1,000 sneakers, I vomit. We, Jesus is looking for servants who work hard. St. Boniface was back in the 700s. He's got a great quote that I keep in my office. He said this. He said, in the olden days, our priests had chalices of wood but hearts of gold. Now they have chalices of gold, but hearts of wood. Can't be like that. Now, still, as pastors, that doesn't mean we abdicate our authority, that we would be abandoning our post before Jesus. Okay, so we still have to do our jobs. Let me pause there, though, and say this. Thank you very, very much for your grace. We have three very imperfect pastors. Thank you for your grace. But I'll tell you what, those three imperfect pastors are a great fit for you all because you're an imperfect church. So let's talk about that side of the equation, okay? So we go on, and uh, what Paul does in this passage as he talks about the congregation's responsibility, he gives eight commands. He's like got it on rapid fire. There's eight commands. I'm going to lump some of them up just for time's sake. The first two we've been dabbling in a little bit. He says to respect and esteem in love, to love them. Now, that means you don't pedestalize, you don't fawn, and you do not worship your pastors ever. But to respect and esteem. He says esteem them very highly for their work. It is work. And I want to be very clear. I love my job. I've got to preach these verses this morning, okay? But don't mishear me. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it louder for the people in the back. I love my job. And I love that I get to do it right here at this church. It, I love it. I love it. But make no mistake, my job is hard. Uh, when I started this church 11 years ago, I kid you not, I had no gray hair. None. Thank you. Thank you for that, all right? Uh, in 2014, Forbes magazine did a survey of the hardest leadership positions in America. Within the top five, pastor. Here's what they said. You're scrutinized and criticized from top to bottom, stem to stern. You work for an invisible, perfect boss, 
and you're supposed to lead a ragtag gaggle of volunteers towards God's coming future. It's like herding cats, but harder. Awesome. Awesome. Part of my job is that I spend a good part of my week preparing to present something to you for 30 minutes, knowing that a huge collection of all my friends and relations and connections will then leave the parking lot judging whether I did well enough. How would you like that for a job? All right. Uh, I've, I have gotten a death threat in the last 10 years. I've been threatened with legal action for doing my job. Also, I'm hardly on social media anymore. It's, it's harder and harder for me to handle the venom and disrespect towards a pastor. Sometimes it comes from within our family, our redemption family. All the keyboard warriors have largely chased me off. I'll give you one example, not from within our family, but it's recent. I did a recent Ask Pastor Rick video. Uh, I, I, this was on my YouTube channel. It's in several places, but uh, there was one guy, Dan, who disagreed with my content. And so his wonderfully charitable response was this. You worship the serpent of Genesis 3.5. Your vanity gave you away. Oh, God bless you. So I actually think he meant that for me, but unfortunately he didn't say it to me. I don't think he realized what he did. So instead of commenting on my video, uh, there was another guy before him that disagreed, Sovereign Reform 27. And uh, he was really, or she was very gracious and respectful and made some good points. It was a good comment. But Dan came along and instead of commenting on my video, replied to that person. So Ashley ended up saying this to that person, not to me. So I thought, yeah, let's see how it plays out. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Let sovereign reform take the hit for me, right? Uh, and I'm hoping they figured it out. Nope, they went at each other for a little bit. Eventually, sovereign reform it was like, I'm done. This is not worth it. That's when I chimed in. So I said, I probably shouldn't get involved in this, but I'm curious and can't help myself. Dan, did you mean to attack the guy in the video? Okay, that's me, but I got to be clear at this point, right? Did you mean to attack the guy in the video as a vain serpent worshiper? Or did you mean to attack some random commenter who disagreed with the video? Like, it can't be both, especially not when you're accusing somebody of worshiping Satan, right? Like, it can't be both. To which Dan replied, yes, you both worship the serpent of Genesis 3.5. This is my job. This is what I do. Oh, goodness. We don't as much have a culture of esteeming pastors anymore. Now, there are cultural exceptions to this. So because of our racial re reconciliation efforts and involvement, I sometimes have the privilege of being at predominantly African-American congregations. They treat pastors like royalty. Any pastor. It's nice. And then I come back here. <laughs> so uh, when, when we went to Mexico, our very first mission trip from this church, we took 10 people, myself included, down to Oaxaca, Mexico, up into the mountains there, uh, tribes, villages. They didn't even know us at all. I was referred to as El Pastor. Not un pastor. El, like not a pastor, the pastor. These people didn't know us or our church, right? So what did my fellow teammates from back here, they made fun of it all week. Ooh, El Pastor's here, right? <laughs> now, there is a good part of it, that part of the personality of our church, right? You've heard this over and over. We take God really seriously, but we don't take ourselves that seriously. That's okay. At the same time, we are called to respect and esteem 
pastors and elders, not just at our church, but at any church, those who have delegated authority from the Lord. Now notice what I said there. Delegated authority. So our submission is actually to God himself. But he has delegated his authority to church leadership. They are his regents to, to rule in his stead in that church. And so sometimes we honor the position, if not the person. The military's gotten good at this. They have the idea that sometimes you, you honor the rank on the uniform, if not the person in the uniform. Kind of a good concept. All right, well, let me pause there and just say, hey, to be fair, we as your pastors feel very respected and esteemed here. Thank you. On behalf of Austin, Jared, and myself, thank you very, very much for that. October is Pastoral Appreciation Month. It was off the charts this year. Some of you didn't know that about October. So here's our situation at Redemption Chapel. We've grown by a lot of conversion growth. People that don't go to church didn't go to church. And, and you don't know about October. But we as pastors control the message. So we're not going to get up here and, hey, here's the most important thing we need to talk about. Let's talk about October. Like, we're not going to do that, right? So by and large, it's gone relatively unnoticed. But somehow this year, I, we don't know if somebody went on a crusade behind our backs, or maybe it was just 2020 and y'all felt bad for us, right? Like, I'm so sorry. We love you, you know? But, but nonetheless, it was off the charts. We feel very respected. We are so grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Those are the first two commands, respect and esteem. Now, the third command that Paul gave is, he said, be at peace among yourselves. Remember, the context of the letter is there's admonishing going on. Uh, the idle people who are lazy and not working, the sexually immoral are being admonished. Now, it's probable that they didn't like it, and that caused dissension in the congregation. And, and so he says, be at peace among yourselves. Unfortunately, what often happens in a church is we go towards gossip and divisions and dissension. And when that happens, I'll tell you what, you usually do not have the full story. It is so easy to win a one-sided argument. And that's usually what happens. When people leave here and go to other churches, it gets back to us what they said about us, and we're like, oh, wow, that is so very much not the story of what took place. One-sided arguments are easy to win. If you want to bless your pastors, here's what you do. Avoid junior high drama and dissension and gossip. Avoid it like the plague or COVID, whatever. Uh, avoid it like gangrene. Like uh, the Bible speaks of it as gangrene because it spreads and it destroys as it goes. Avoid it. Repent of it. Confront it even. Like when somebody comes to you complaining to, about your church leadership, say, hey, did you talk to your elders and pastors about that? No? No? Well, then stop talking to anyone else until you talk to them. Or if they say, yes, I did, then you say, okay, well then having heard your side, are you okay if I go talk to them and get their side? That has a real chilling effect on gossip and dissension right there. The reason I drill on it is this. People are so worried about the secularization of, secularization of America. It's going to destroy the church. Listen, the biggest threat to the church is not outside. It's inside. It's dissension and gossip and this kind of stuff. And we need to be at peace among ourselves. So that's Paul's third command there. Number four through seven, I'll lump up. Uh, he says, do the ministry of the church. I say, wait, wait a minute. Aren't we in the congregation section right now? Like, isn't that what we hired the pastors to do? 
Yes, pastors are supposed to toil and work and labor at admonishing and leading and teaching, but after telling the congregation to respect and esteem the pastors, Paul goes on, look at verse 14. He says, and we urge you, brothers, that's the whole congregation, we urge you to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. If you remember the context of what he's covered already, Admonish the idol means there are those who are lazy and not working. Admonish them. Encourage the faint-hearted. Those are, there are people who are grieving and mourning the loss of their loved ones who died perhaps as, as a result of martyrdom, and they're not sure if they went to heaven, what's going on, and they are faint-hearted. Encourage them. And then there are those who are struggling with sexual temptation and some who are getting persecution, and you need to help the weak. Help the weak. Now, it takes discernment to know which to do. Like, you do not want to help the idol. You want to admonish the idol. And you do not want to admonish the weak. You want to help the weak. And if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. You got to have discernment and do the right thing at the right time. So you got to know this because he's telling you to do this as a congregation with each other. And then he says, be patient with them all because it takes a lot of patience to do ministry. The word patience there is the word for having a really long fuse. Really, really long. Be patient with them all. Now that is a lot of the work of the church. And you say, well, isn't that the pastor's job? No, the pastors are supposed to be coaching the congregation who's out on the field and you're doing the playing. Many churches have it such that the congregation is in the stands watching the pastor out on the field doing all the ministry. And that's not what Paul is saying. In America, we have a a very big crisis. Pastors are burning out. 2020 is going to wipe out a lot of pastors, and we're going to be hurting as a church in America as a result. Pastors are burning out. They're, They're experiencing moral failure. Some have committed suicide. They are leaving the pastorate. And in part, they're doing it because the congregation is expecting the pastors to do all the work, all the ministry. Now, let me pause again. We're really blessed here at Redemption Chapel. In our staff meeting regularly, happened again just back on Thursday. In our staff meeting, it is very regular that some staff member of mine, another different one, it's different all the time, chimes in and says, you know what? We have great volunteers here hardworking, great hearts, gifted, tons of them. We are blessed as a church. So on behalf of the staff team, let me just say, thank you. Thank you very, very much. We're blessed in that. We really are. Well, the eighth and final command is this. He says, pray for us. Brothers, pray for us. The word pray there is in a verb tense that is continuous. So it's like, brothers, keep on praying for us. It's not one and done. Keep praying for your pastors. This is not an easy job. It is a dangerous job. It leads to a lot of pastors that implode in many different ways. So let me show you a piece of paper that I keep taped above my desk. It's right here. It's a list of names of men who have failed in the ministry and not ended well. If you look in the middle of the list, there's my name with a question mark next to it. And I'm asking the question, will that be me? How does it end for me? 
And I want to be desperately dependent upon my Lord. I'm even scared. You understand, it doesn't end well for pastors. A lot of lead pastors don't end well. It seems like there are two options. Either the church doesn't grow or the pastor ends poorly. I don't like my choices. And so I'm asking you, please, please pray for us that we might end well. Please. All right, let me wrap up with this. Uh, I'm an unlikely pastor. I'm a first-generation Christian. I didn't grow up in the church much. Uh, I came with a lot of baggage from a dysfunctional family. I was an economics major (laughs) in college. Uh, And uh, I'm, as my wife reminds me often, I'm a bad human. (laughs) I'm just a punk. I'm an unlikely pastor. I'm a pastor by the grace of God, and I think by the humor of God. I think God's having a laugh. He's like, hey, Gabriel, come here. Watch this. I'm going to make Rick McKee a pastor. And he's like, shut up. I don't think Gabriel actually says shut up to God. But you get the idea. Like, unlikely, unlikely. But hear this. I love my job. I love my Lord. I'm in awe that he made me a son of his, let alone a pastor. I love his kingdom, I love his mission, I love his gospel, I love my job, and I love this church. I love that I get to pastor here. It's a huge, huge privilege. And so on behalf of pastors Austin and Jared and myself, I just want to say thank you so much for being in the Redemption family with us. Thank you. I have a request. There's much that we can meditate on and apply in our own lives to protect our own church. Let's do that. But here's what I want you to do uniquely this week. I want you to send this to Christians you know in other churches. I do feel really blessed here. This is a passage, this is a sermon that most pastors don't get to preach, but I think a lot of congregations need to hear. And so I wonder if you would just uniquely shoot this one out a lot, if you will. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I am really, really grateful for your grace that made me your son. I don't even get that. (laughs) that's crazy. And then that you would uh, allow me, as you have allowed my family here, to use our gifts and service to your kingdom, and particularly for me, you allow me to be a pastor. That's crazy. Thank you for your grace and your humor in that. Father, we do pray your protection on our pastors. Pray that as a congregation, we would be healthy, that our pastors would do their jobs well and rightly before you, and that our congregation would do their jobs well and rightly before you. Please, Lord, your grace there. And we pray for it in Christ's name. Amen.